Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. <laughs> Sorry. I thought we were. I, know, I, I, know, I was like, so I was like, I'm okay, so okay. I'll jump in ahead of you. Oh my feels. gosh. It we're is. It so does feel unnatural. I'm such shit today. I'm it sorry. It does feel unnatural. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. So we'll just keep <laughs> as is. What way are we doing? Okay, go ahead. Wh- no, which way? I don't think we all know. Okay, let's. Yeah, let's keep as is. Sorry. We that was my fault. Or, or no, no, no. Order. Just normal okay, order. Okay, so you're ready. Okay, I'm good. ready. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. <laughs> and we took us a few tries to get that right. We're sitting in a different order today. Yeah, and, and it's, it's messing with my head. <laughs> it's thrown us for a loop. I like it. I sound better. <laughs> you do. You I thankfully you will world. you will sound I think that's your mic. <laughs> My voice carries, so it's oh, good. We're getting our groove. It's good. Yeah. Guys, how's it going? Meh. <laughs> it's I it's been a turbulent week for me and it's just but like I've been basically working all weekend. And I'm tired, and we have a sexual harassment workshop tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to be ready? <laughs> yeah. It'll be fine. Just yeah. Got 12 hours. Yay. 24 hours. <laughs> That's not math. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of time to do it. Yeah. All right. It's fine. Amy, how's, uh, how's your week, your weekend been? Uh, I had a really good weekend. I attended a uh, Law Needs Feminism conference at UVO. Uh, it's a conference bringing together uh, law students, practitioners, members of the community uh, to speak about access to justice and feminism in the legal profession. And it was super motivating. I feel like it's kind of, yeah, it's got me really inspired. Neat. Uh, I, I just work all the time. <laughs> I was afraid to ask. But I don't, I don't know. Aww. I just, like, 28 days later, I'm still working. Is there an end in sight? Hopefully only one more weekend. So, that'll be nice Good. to have a weekend again. Good, yeah. Yeah, I uh, had a little bit of a sleep-in yesterday. It was glorious. And by sleep-in, I mean eight. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Well, I got to go back to school and feel like a student again, so I really enjoyed that. Although I did get my nails done, Saturday. so. Oh, well, there you go. A little me time. <laughs> um, yeah, this week, actually, Amy and I have a column in the Ottawa Citizen that I think we'll get into later in the pod, so stay tuned for that discussion. Um, also, shout out to Teresa, one of our new patrons. Um, you can become a patron of the pod and get access to things like our newsletter, advance access to bonus pods, and exclusive access to special podcasts. So patreon.com slash bad and bitchy to do that. So you guys ready? Let's do it. Let's get into it. Yep. This week in feminism, um, the uh, Justin Trudeau's liberal government announced their budget for this fiscal year. This penultimate budget before the next federal election in 2019 was pegged to be the most feminist budget ever. <laughs> and I, it delivered? 
We'll get into that. <laughs> I. It sounded great. Let's I, let's go through the line yeah, items. I. I D- that's a that's a trick question. Did it deliver? <laughs> I I feel like on the surface it did, um, in terms. But that's a relative comparison, and it was a pretty low bar to begin with. So I think the question is: Is it enough? Probably we would say, probably not. But is he is he on the right track? Who knows? So this budget um, used. A gender lens, and you know, last budget, um, they also used a gender lens, but this one took it to the next level. They used gender-based analysis plus, which I, it is just you know a basic tenet of intersectional feminism. That's the definition of intersectional feminism. That means that aside from just using the differences between men and women, you also account for things like geographical differences, socioeconomic differences, um, you know, physical abilities, age, ra- uh, race, immigration status, language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they made some of those um, parts public for each of the um, items in the budget. So the budget actually included $231 million over five years to address the opioid crisis in Canada, five weeks of extra leave for two parent families under the EI parental sharing benefit, uh, which is what they're calling paternity leave, um, legislation on federal pay equity, $1.4 billion over six years in new funding for First Nations Child and Family Services, $2 billion over five years in additional foreign aid under the Feminist International Assistance Policy, $10 million over five years for an RCMP unit to review 25,000 cases of sexual assault deemed unfounded, which we re- referenced many times on the podcast, uh, $30 million over three years to promote women and girls' participation in sport. Statistics Canada will receive $600,000 to establish a Center for Gender, Diversity, and Inclusion Statistics, um, they've also created an advisory council on implementing national pharmacare. And there's also tons of money for reconciliation activities of Indigenous peoples. And uh, by tons, I mean billions of dollars. Um, so the proactive pay equity legislation uh, makes will make federal employers responsible for ensuring equal pay for equal work of equal value. Uh, preliminary estimates suggest that the legislation could reduce the gender wage pay gap by about 2.7 cents on the dollar for the federal government and 2.6 cents on the dollar for the federal private sector. Uh, This year's budget also adds $85 million targeted specifically at addressing workplace harassment and funding to rape crisis centers, including, interestingly enough, rape crisis centers near Canadian forces bases, which is an issue we've also spoken frequently about on the podcast. Um, There's also a long-awaited increase to funding for women's organizations. Uh, The women's program will now have twice as much money to award in the the form of grants and contributions to women's organizations. Um, Also, the Department of Status of Women, which is kind of a junior department right now, will become a full department with a full staff Uh, plus money for federal financing for small enterprises by women, and also money to help 
paid tuition for women entering the trades. Um, and then there's also, I think this is Erica's little tidbit, is her favorite bit of wishful thinking, an award for the corporation that does the most to promote women in leadership. <laughs> <laughs> always, always ready for the pat on the back for doing the bare minimum. Thoughts? I just said it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I was actually pleasantly surprised by this budget, I must say. I was like, oh, look at that. They're really, like, doing this. Okay. They just labeled them. Okay. Um, again, I, I, there's a whole swath of, of money coming in um, that I thought was needed and necessary and was missing from the general basis from which they allocate money to, I don't want to say women's issues, because I hate that, mm -hmm. um, to a more feminist agenda. Um, they are doing some work around that, and uh, I give them credit for, I guess, seeing or creating the writing on the wall, especially in the midst of Me Too and Time's Up and, and basically everything that's Donald Trump and, you know, the Trump administration and so on and so forth. Um, but let's not remember that the budget itself is a bit of, it's, it's a marketing document too, right? Mm. And I think when we talk about the, the budget itself, there is, of course, this um, substantive, sort of measures, of course. But it is also um, a promotional document. It, the way it's written, the way um, the things that are highlighted, they're all promotional sort of pieces. And um, it's very interesting, having, wor having worked in, in the Department of Finance during the Harper years, and what was highlighted, and now with Trudeau, I do think it is, I don't want to say admirable because I don't want to say admirable, but my question is, the implementation of this budget, I don't know if we have a public service that's up for the job. I'll be honest with you. Because there's not much inclusion and representation at the higher levels. So how can we expect them to implement a feminist type or, or women-centered um, budget if they do not have the personnel or the tools to do it. And I know, I know, Erin, you're going to take a, a leave for my comment. I have no opinion on this matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, that's, but, but that's part of the problem, in my opinion. I also think that um, we seem to think that the problem is... Uh, education, I, I, I specifically talk about the trades, the money for the trades. I think the problem is getting companies to give you an apprenticeship for women. Having talked to people in the trades, that's, or women in the trades, that's a big issue. And this budget did not address that. And I find that um, 
Uh, it's sorry, just to mm. just to interject here. I think that that is really interesting, and I think that our next item will also tie into that. Okay, good, <laughs> because uh, I I having been on the other side of like being a stakeholder, I can see where they get these ideas. It's just I really do think the policy uh, needs to be partially informed by people on the ground, experienced in that sort of of whatever industry or whatever outcome you're trying to target, we should be talking to people in those fields, working though, like working every day in those fields, instead of some, you know, I don't know, I don't know, half-baked. I, I wanna call it half-baked because I really don't think a lot of these things address the actual problems. Right, I mean, I think that's the biggest critique uh, of this budget that I mean, ultimately, they, they've won, I think, uh, part of the, n the news cycle and, and the imaging around the budget um, has definitely, I think, generally been favorable to the liberals. Um, many people are making a big deal about the frequent references to the and use of the word gender throughout the budget, um, you know, logged at 359 times that it's like on just as many pages. So, you know, they've, they've done a good job, again, of, of marketing and promoting themselves through this budget, but I think folks who've looked closer have consistently said it's not addressing systemic problems, it's not getting to the root of some of the issues of um, whether it's gender inequality or um, the income gap, um, even where they talk about cracking down on um, tax shelters and tax, uh, uh, tax avoidance measures, there is no restructuring of the tax system to close loopholes or to change um, the tax rates for uh, higher earners. So it's really just going after avoidance. So in terms of addressing inequality through the tax tax regime, there isn't even um, anything more pro anything really progressive about the stance that they've taken. Um, and and I mean, I think the fairest critique is that they're trying to develop a platform, a progressive platform, taking ideas from the NDP, but on a very fiscal conservative, uh, conservatively fiscal uh, framework. Um, which Re is really relatively. Is. Relatively. <laughs> no, but I mean, in terms of what it would take to actually do these programs, I think the biggest uh, takeaway from the week was the pharmacare issue. Um, it seems when you glean from the budget that there is an appetite to address pharmacare, uh, you, you look a little bit more closely, they're talking about studying the issue, which has been studied at ad nauseum and been studied by the provinces, been studied by the federal government. There have been commissions that have been um, you know, have, have been tasked with this over the years um, in, in part led by the li past Liberal governments. Um, and then you have uh, Minister Morneau then speaking to in economic circles um, with folks on Bay Street and, and in the finance sector and saying, well, no, no, worry not, we're not actually looking to do pharmacare for everyone, it would be pharmacare for some, and that's what we would be need to study, how we do allow a, uh, a needs-based program, which is not uh, what any research has found is needed. What's needed is a universal pharmacare program uh, to, uh, as, a com as an accompaniment to universal health care for it to be actually meaningful. Um, to say nothing of, um, you know, Minister Morneau's conflicts of interest with in, in his past life. Uh, with a consultancy that focused uh, a great deal on, on pharma uh, pharmaceutical industry and, and uh, health benefits. So there's, people are also calling him out for that conflict of interest. So I don't, I don't know that that will get much traction uh, beyond certain circles, but I think that's, that's notable, um, yeah, takeaway from the week. I will say that 
we have said a number of times on the podcast that we kind of want Justin Trudeau and his government to be more ambitious, to be more audacious in their what they're looking for. And I think this does meet some of that. And like you said, Erica, you're you're worried about the actual implementation and whether or not these things are going to be implemented on time and as intended. Um, but I think that that worry comes from the audacity of this. Budget. Yeah, and um, the public service is, is anything but audacious. <laughs> like, I, I think it's, a, I, I'll just jump in quickly and say a lot of the most interesting things in this that, um, you know, liberals are touting as, as big moves for equality um, and, and equity-seeking groups came from a lot of activism and a lot of struggle. Um, even the number for uh, uh, First Nations Child and Family Services, that, and I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast, that is from, that, I mean, that's partly flowing from uh, a human rights complaint that the government lost and has had four orders against them uh, demanding that they pay uh, for the lack of funding that goes to the inequitable funding for Indigenous children in this country. And that's from a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decision that was groundbreaking. And the federal government has refused to actually follow through on the ordered remedies at four different instances. And from that organization, from the Friendship Centers um, and other groups that have worked on that, their, crit their critique of the, the funds is that it's not clear necessarily where it's going to or that it meets the full extent of what's needed. Um, I mean, everyone's hopeful and celebrating this partially as good news, but it's going to require scrutiny from uh, activists and, and uh, advocates um, in the community. But it, it came with a huge fight. Like, it took many years to litigate on that one issue, and now finally it's in the 2018 budget after they were court-ordered to pay Oh, out. yeah. Like, you know, when I saw money for, for black Canadians, I, almost, I, I literally almost fell off my chair. Did you do a spit take? I was like, <laughs> I, was like I better post this. I better take a screenshot of this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, I know that from one of the organizations who received funding that, that it has been a fight. It's been a battle. Um, but, w like, we, it, it just seems like we as women and also we as marginalized, like, minority groups, okay? Let's not say marginalized, minority groups. It, it seems like we have only one viable option because the conservatives aren't the, would never do this. They would never even get close to this, you know? They weren't. They didn't even show up for 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 the women's march. So why would we? And and I feel like we're in this this sort of two party system. Yeah, I know the NDP. I know. Hey, I wasn't but, gonna say anything. But but <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like we're in this two party system where um, the liberals get to have all the credit for doing all these things just because they're the only one. And I feel like that's Canada in a nutshell. There's only one, so we will we'll do what we can with that, even though it's suboptimal. Sub mm -hmm. I mean, I think, w w like, but for they, they're having a party on the left and a very strong, um, I think, mood now and, and mobilization uh, that's nonpartisan as well around some of these issues, uh, the liberals wouldn't be as far left as they are today. 
Um, yeah. And I think, like, oh, for sure. credit where credit's due on that front. Oh, for sure. Um, like, at the end of the day, um, Justin Trudeau doesn't want to get, you know, out left, lefted yeah. by Jagmeet Singh, right? Yeah. And the conversation that folks are having is a lot more progressive and nuanced than it's ever been, I think, because m there are people mobilizing on these issues. I mean, you look at, even in Ontario, the 15 and Fairness campaign, like, the only reason we have the minimum wage hike that we have is because people were organizing, and we're organizing folks that typically weren't being organized, like non-unionized workers and folks who um, are in these more precarious work environments. And that was a campaign over many, many years until the provincial government you know, acquiesced, acknowledged that it was necessary. But they acquiesced and acknowledged it after all of the protests in the States. That's the other thing is that I really do think that American activism affects us more than we think. And the, in terms of the conversation, in terms of where the conversation goes. Um, do you mean that like it bolsters our argument? Yeah. In like when there's like the same conversation happening, that when there's the same conversation happening, and lawmakers in the states make certain changes, I think that in Canada, it's kind of like okay. I don't know if that was true for minimum wage, but it's it's. I mean, it's certainly I think true for uh, drug legalization. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. And I bring up yeah okay. I, I know people have been working on minimum wage forever. Yeah, um, but it's just a lot more fractured in the States than our conversation. They but always but are. Yeah. They always are because, you know, there's just a lot more diversity in diversity, you, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in the States. But, um, but, you know, I don't think we should leave out the fact that the mobilization in the States around certain issues has definitely affected um, the visibility of those issues in Canada, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I entirely agree, but I don't have to. <laughs> I mean, and and just thinking of some other uh, wins for other uh, movements or activists, the other being the paid domestic uh, violence leave. Uh, yeah, folks are entitled to, and I know uh, people who worked on that and lobbied for that from uh, the Canadian Labour Congress. And they went in expecting uh, that they would get a lot less, but they got five days paid a year uh, for. So that's if you're in a domestic violence situation, you can take paid leave to take time to extricate yourself from that or do what you have to do. Um, and and that, that, is, that is really amazing. Um, I think that's uh, credit yeah. where credit's due. That's a great uh, so policy. How do you how do you feel that this, moves anything forward in terms of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals' brand in terms of being a quote-unquote feminist government? Oh, they've nailed that. You know. So the other thing that they introduced as part of the budget was making status of women a full-on department. Yeah. Um, and for those of us who remember when status of women lost entirely all of its funding and generally over the last 10 years, um, and it still hasn't fully been rehabilitated by the Liberals, and I th imagine that's the next step, funding to women's organizations that used to flow from status of women. Um, so, much, so many program funding for organizations across the country is completely decimated under Stephen Harper. Um, and so to see that come back in and to see a formal structure through status of women as a department in the federal government, um, being able to champion these issues or at least be a place for um, 
bridging those kinds of changes through policy, I think it's really huge. Um, so we shouldn't devalue that. I mean, even this weekend, I was listening to folks from the National Association of Women in Law um, and the amazing work that they used to do on law reform around, you know, uh, reform to the Divorce Act, uh, reforms for women in incarcerated, reform, like just so many issues, like law reform issues. So that's not like launching charter challenges, but actually advocating for legislative changes. And they used to be fully funded through um, those types of programs, and they had their funding um, reinitiated in December, which that's, I think, th great, that a great service. That brings up a, a, good a good question then. How much of this funding is, I mean, it's new funding, but in, in the strict um, um, fiscal framework sense. However, how much of this is just, how much of this new funding is just restoring old yeah. levels? Yeah, that, that'd be interesting to look into. I, I think a, a decent chunk of it probably is like a restoration mm -hmm. um, from what we lost over that dark, dark decade in our history. <laughs> so, so yes, okay, we can say that the, the liberal government has put their money where their mouth is <coughs> in terms of being feminist. How do you think the the brand and the, like the way forward in terms of the public facing thing changes? Like Trudeau is always talking about how he's so feminist and he supports he supports women and it's all very nice sounding, but there's no substance behind it. How are they going to have to like bolster what they put out there in the public to really? But it communicate yeah. what this means. I think what they've put out there, though, is enough for a layperson, like a general voter, not someone who's nitpicking like us, to look at it and say they've done enough. We hear, like, people are, and I'm sure there's folks on the other side who are tired of hearing the word gender. Who there will be a backlash probably to this budget. I'm sure the government's already feeling that in some places. Um, so I think they've done enough by be by using the the right words. I think sometimes that has. Um, just a profound, just as profound an, an effect. I think what's the the real trick will be for new Democrats to, for example, and, and other voices who want to move that further into actually addressing systemic change to be able to differentiate themselves, um, and also not, and also to ex have to explain that to the public that this isn't, that this isn't enough without seeming overly defensive, because um, I think the, the the liberals have kind of that are encroaching for sure. I think this is clever as fuck, actually. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the whole the whole news cycle about this about this budget has been about women. Totally. Have been about the feminist totally. government. Yada yada yada. That's the news cycle. As much as Pharmacare came into it and and you had these you had these other trailing sort yeah. of issues, that's the real story. And it kind of puts the conservatives on their back heels because it's set a standard. I think that's basically what it's done. It's like, and the conservatives, when they responded to the budget, I thought, eh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. they, it's, they had it's very little, and they were they had, timid They about had it. very yeah. little, they were, you're right. And they were grasping, they seemed like they were grasping at straws. They, they focused on the fact that it spends a lot of money and it's not fiscally responsible. Exactly, which like is the same thing we hear from them every budget. Which is which is fair. That's a fair argument, and that's a well, sure. Totally the debt issue is is and that's it's a their totally piece. legitimate yeah. belief to have, and you know, forty percent of Canadians don't like that this adds to the deficit. Yeah, totally fair argument. Any new money is going to add to the deficit. Exactly, 
And so you want money for planes? The thing is, that's is that gonna add. they yeah. can't <laughs> argue this because how can you say, oh, women shouldn't get that? Well, that's what I'm saying is that they've they've positioned themselves so well, in the sense that the conservatives can't really all they can do is nitpick at the edges. The but when yeah. you ask, you know, if you were to ask them, well, what what would you have rather seen? What can they say? Because you know, right now in this country, we are talking about we're talking about sexual harassment. We're also talking a lot about indigenous issues. The conservatives have not been good on either of those fronts, and this is what this budget is exactly about. So I feel like the liberals have cleverly manipulated the, um, the, the, political, the political landscape. And then the NDP can say, hey, those are, those are our ideas, but they're not in power. You know what I mean? They don't have... Yeah, and that's, I think that's a fair argument that for the NDP to make, yeah. is to say that those were our ideas, but... I mean, that's always their argument. <laughs> but if they're good enough, then oh, yeah. why shouldn't the Liberals adopt them? I mean, so this is the biggest... Or why shouldn't yeah, the NDP yeah. I mean, make more of an impact? So I'll say this of... and So the... I mean, it's interesting. The conversation's definitely shifted. The fact that Andrew Shearer feels like he has to say he's a feminist or, like, address these issues... Um, in that way and is now only critiquing the fiscal responsibility of the budget. Um, I think, Erica, you're totally right. Like, we're, we've forced them into this whole other space, um, which, which I'm, I'm down for. As far as the NDP, I think that is a big issue for the party, that they, um, ha they have to be bolder, they have to move further left, they have to really carve out a space for themselves around nationalizing certain industries or certain um, sectors um, around uh, providing, you know, universal services um, in in a really profound, like, profound way, um, because voters don't want to vote for, you know, a, a lesser liberal party, a liberal party that's never formed government, which is what the NDP is. If they just continue to say the liberals stole all of our good ideas, like your ideas have to be even more um, memorable than to say you know, we stood for these things at one point. For answer to the brand question. Yeah. I think that people are going to get tired of hearing about niceties. Like, we're already here tired of it. Mm -hmm. We're tired of the, you know, whatever. And I think that they're going to have to actually put some substance behind the talking points in a meaningful way. And I think that... Justin Trudeau is going to have to really examine the women he puts in power in cabinet and where and actually support and elevate those people mm -hmm. to be successful instead of putting them at risk and making them almost liabilities. Mm -hmm. Because for the most part, the women in cabinet are very competent, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, they are in the wrong place. Like in terms of portfolio. Yeah. Huh. Or they're just not given the space to actually... To have agency, to, yeah, to lead, yeah. to lead or, a portfolio yeah. into an audacious kind of yeah. mandate. Yeah. I mean, where and, and where that was done, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still really frustrated with how Miriam Munsef was treated when she was yeah. in that role as minister for, like, examining the new Democratic... Electoral whatever, reform. Electoral reform. But and now as status of women, she seems to be doing very well. Right, but the, my issue isn't that she wasn't doing well. 
in electoral was, reform is that they didn't want to do anything on that agenda and didn't and I, had her tour I, I around. I was thinking just that. I and was like, no, and they said what a... on a national tour and made, made all this like made it made it seem like it was a big deal that they were going to go through with something. And mm. in the end, Trudeau recently says, oh, no, I actually never had any intention. It was a bait and switch. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you can say whatever. She was a, she was she was very young. She's a new minister. Maybe, she, you know, maybe she fell short on a couple things. But in terms of how that portfolio was treated and how much power she was actually entrusted with, I think it was pre-written that she, her, you know, her contributions were never going to go anywhere. I think so, too. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying, is that yeah. putting people in places where they Yeah, no, I totally. Yeah. And, and this I just is not, and this is not a good yeah. look, considering that, you know, she is arguably a woman of color. Yeah. She is new. Young. She's fresh, yeah. young, and an immigrant. Also, she's amazing. If you've ever met well, her, she's I a found refugee. She's a refugee, she's a too. Speaking of refugee ministers, <laughs> the right. Minister of Immigration. Yeah. Um, he doesn't say much, either. He no, doesn't say much about much. And this is a hot file. And so I feel like it's, it's sort of like this similar thing, which is what white people do at work. Yeah. Well, and, and Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, who um, is now speaking again, as we talked about this on the last pod, like in a kind of a reactionary fashion to what's been happening. And that's not to say that she doesn't have a vision. I just don't, and I think she's brilliant and she comes from a very strong background to be able to contribute a lot to reimagining the justice system for indigenous, like from an indigenous perspective. But she hasn't been given any like room or power to do that. Um, on the major file that she has, which is marijuana legalization, um, although that seems to be happening, it's happening quite slowly, but the other piece that's very important for the justice minister is how to deal with uh, the, like people's records and how to deal with people who have um, you know, past convictions or even charges that are still waiting to be heard. And it doesn't seem like there's been any movement on that, and that could have been something she would have been very, like, well, as Minister of Justice, but also, like, given her background, would have been in a great position to lead lead on. And it's, I mean, there's complete silence on that portfolio. Speaking of the Justice Minister, now, mm -hmm. now, uh, she's another one. She's a big question mark for me. All right. I'm There's not a profile of her. In no, 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 not in. I'm not just profile. You know. <laughs> it's just Penny like I just like I will read yeah, that. Yeah. Thank you. Send me the link, girl. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure about her. Like I, I just I, I, I don't like. She just seems to be sort of silent on certain things, and I don't know. But maybe my expectations are just too high, mm -hmm. and maybe are too too much for for her position right now. Yeah, and also, and I'm I'm okay with yeah. admitting that that yeah. I am coming from it from this sort of, you know, I want more, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just I would like her to be a little bit more vocal on justice issues, especially as it pertains to indigenous, people of color. Mm -hmm. um, the money for legal aid was great. I think that was another really fantastic thing. That That's was a long time coming. Fantastic. Yeah. Which brings me back to the restoration yeah. issue, but yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know. You yeah, have I to don't know if he ever had that. So the new legal aid funding um, 
they're also establishing a few new clinics, dealing with um, some uh, like specialized um, issues of areas of law, and also providing legal aid services for um, with a focus on sexual harassment. So if you're experiencing sexual harassment, you can access legal aid to um, you know have have someone represent you through those processes. Um, I don't know that we ever had those in particular, so I think those are expansions. But but you're right. Like for example, the court challenges program, which was reinstated la in the last budget. Or maybe the budget before that, that was a rebuilding. Um, and the issue with legal aid funding in general across the country is that it's um, stag like been stagnant for a really long time. Um, and even the qualifications, uh, like how, how much you need to make to qualify for legal aid yeah. has, has remained um, steady for m like, I think almost two decades or something. Mm -hmm. So it's not really compatible with how people are living or who needs to access legal services or what they cost. Yeah, but there's a huge access to justice issue, and you're right. Like that's a big something, a huge concern for me, a huge concern for a lot of people, um, that they're completely um, unable for some of the most basic things to get legal representation. And I just watched How to Get Away with Murder and <laughs> Scandal this oh week. No. Oh, the crossover. My oh, God. Okay. <laughs> and oh, have you seen it yet? No, I'm not. Okay, I but told this you. is yes. It was black. It as was black fuck. as fuck. <laughs> and and they hit on this. Point. Yeah. The, sh the, the shows were about this point oh, exactly. You are go this is okay. I love Amy, both those shows. I'm just behind Amy, it. I'm really you need this I, in I your know. life. Yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> that you need it because I feel like exactly what we're talking about yeah. is exactly what they were saying yeah. and talking about in the episode. So mm -hmm. okay. I, 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 can't I wait. encourage it. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, I, I don't understand the need to give more white guys accolades for that like award a fucking is award. So funny. So the I mean I I think we've moved away. I mean there's there's a place to acknowledge people and to recognize their work. I'm not against awards in general, but I think we've established that those types of things don't change the measures of like e of equity or equality in workplaces enough like that's not the kind of incentive people need nor like i say just legislate it like just make it a requirement to that do either, what that either people track data depending on the industry that they're in or that they apply based on the depending on the number of people who work there actual employment equity measures isn't isn't that because this is for private sector it's for federal contracts right yeah so they already measure, but they don't have a right. Like they, I think they still give contracts out. So why not just make it a requirement that you actually have to like meet certain thresholds for government know. contracts or in I general? Well, for government contracts, if this if this is the group that they're trying to motivate. But isn't that what they did though? Uh, in terms of pay equity for those who are applying for government contracts, not pay equity. So I thought we we're talking about. Um, like actual numbers of representation, but maybe oh, I'm oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So I think they're they're captured by employment equity, but like that's just for tracking. I don't think it actually like means what I was talking about was it was was pay equity actually. Oh, okay. Sorry. So we're talking about two different <laughs> things. Okay, gotcha. Okay, lots going on. Lots going. Well, there's a lot in this budget. There's a lot of meat yeah. in this budget. I I think we've spent like forty minutes talking about this budget, mm -hmm. and it's exciting because I. You know, usually I'm like, tax that, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. okay, more money for infrastructure, which is interesting that they didn't no do. No money for infrastructure. No money for infrastructure. Um, and, you know, something that I quite enjoyed, no new money for military. Woo! 
Yeah. I was into that. I like how people were like, what is going on? I'm like, it's excellent. No new money for RCMP or national defense. I'm here for that. So here for that. And I know. I it's know also not, uh, to be clear, it's not that there's no money to pay. Th- like, you know, like, there's just there's no, no new money. New we're not money. buying new there's things. There's no it's additional fine. We're good. money we're good beyond now. what was We wasted a lot of money yeah. on new equipment and all sorts of other, like, you know, sideshow things. Bosch yeah. procurement. Bosch procurement. So now we're going to take a breather for a bit. No new money. Um, the interesting thing, though, somehow, so, like, it's hard to always tell what these numbers mean. And I'm sure, Erica, you could give us, like, a better read of how seriously to take how, how these things are framed in the budget. But, like, the money that they say is allocated for addressing, like, anti-black racism or, or supporting the black community. I can't remember the exact language. I think some people. It's criti- paltry. Uh, well, it's paltry, but then some people were critiquing it, saying it looks like wh- how they read the budget. It looks like some of it is coming from that six hundred thousand dollars for the Center of Gender Diversity and Inclusion statistics. That's possible. So, like, the budget is not the legislation, right. right? You have to go through a notice of ways and means. Go on. Yeah. So the way in Canada and I guess Westminster systems is mm-hmm. that we put forward a budget implementation bill. It gets passed goes to the Senate, it goes, it receives royal assent. It's a relatively like smooth process. Like there is some debate in the House of Commons, but it's not like in the states where there's edits to it. Like you don't put forward a budget. There's not a discussion and a negotiation. It basically gets passed as written, more or less. Only yeah. because we, we work on a majority or minority system, and the only way it might get changed is if there was a minority government and it didn't mm-hmm. get support. Mm-hmm. The only way to get support from another party was through changing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But generally, we have minority majority governments. Generally. Yeah, the table's at the back is new money. <laughs> <laughs> like at the back of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, end of chapter of history. Anyway, sorry. I just yeah. I just thought about that, and I was like going through all the history <laughs> in my head. Um, it's just good for people to know that. Yeah. There's, yeah. 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 Now, the money that they announce in the wording that's is not necessarily new money. That's it. Yeah. yeah that's what I'm referring yeah. to. Yeah. So that's the that's the little there. There's if anybody wants to learn how to <laughs> read the money allocated in the budget. So when I said 19 million. Over yeah. five years, which yeah. is it's really nothing. not that much it's money. It's 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 a token, yeah. which is typical. Although maybe anyway. the first time that black but Canadians are mentioned in the budget. But it is the first time that black so. Canadians are mentioned in the budget. You're right. Yeah. And the liberals are going to take that and they're going to use it to campaign. So our next topic is the Chatelaine Man Survey. So we were actually try- talking earlier about how to explain Chatelaine magazine to Mm non-Canadians. We couldn't come up with a comparable example. It was like... I said Red Book. Yes. I don't... Mixed with good housekeeping, mixed with... I feel like they're trying to do a GQ, Teen Vogue, let's talk about the issues. Yeah, so I would say like growing up, Chatelaine magazine was very much Red Book and good housekeeping. And it's not anymore? I think there are a lot of young people, younger I think people. they're intentionally trying to move into this this new area, as you say, like GQ and Teen Vogue. Like, they get that that's where the conversation And Esquire. Happens. Those, oh, those yeah. three have been killing it. Yes. Yeah. Killing it. And, th- like, in terms of legacy media and legacy magazines, 
I think they're just killing it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, Chatelaine is a Canadian magazine for women. And they recently had a, a thing called the Man Survey, where they asked 1,000 men between the ages of 25 and 65 about growing up, work, fatherhood, sex, mansplaining, loneliness, the Me Too movement, and feminism. So Chatelaine says that they set out to spark a conversation about the state of masculinity by asking men to speak anonymously about things that they would never say in public. So things like, what are their greatest insecurities? What they have had to sacrifice to be a good parent? Do they believe sexual harassment is a real problem? Uh, this was done in partnership with Abacus Data, so there's kind of a scientific method behind it. Um, and they, the men were surveyed from across the country. They also invited dozens of men, including radio and TV personalities, uh, the head of the Toronto Raptors, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to speak about masculinity in several videos. So some statistics that we just wanted to highlight were when growing up, 57% of men surveyed said that they believed that being a man meant being physically tough. Uh, what else played into their idea of what it meant to be a real man was uh, being the breadwinner, which was the second highest at 48%, being fair, which was 30, 31%, being kind, 29%, being heterosexual, 28%, being the boss, 22%, et cetera, et cetera. And this was, remember, this is when they were children growing up and what they were oh, being okay. taught. Mm -hmm. So as adults, 64% now believe that being fair is the most important part of what it means to be a man. I just want, like, I want to put a pin in that one specific yeah. thing. And oh, duly noted. Hold on. But so 64% being fair is the most important thing to be a man. Then being kind, 59%. Having high emotional intelligence, 50%. Being tough, 27%. Being the breadwinner, 18%. Heterosexuality, 17%. Being the boss went down only to 9%. So what the fuck does it mean to be fair? This sounds like a load of shit. Like, <laughs> it really I does. I don't want to be too dismissive. I'm, I'm super into the results of the survey. Like, I'm really enjoying reading all the articles associated with it. It's a lot of content that Chatelaine's generated. But I, I don't, like, without any explanation, it's so hard to understand that. It makes me kind of think, like, people are responding based on what they think they should be answering. Thank you. And this is why <laughs> I said it was a load of shit. Yeah. It's because I feel like they knew that they were going to be put in a women's magazine and they <laughs> want to look a certain way. Well, I mean, that's the problem with every sort of survey. Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. I think you're supposed to disclose generally though like to some degree what the survey's for but I mean even the question like the way it is like you sort of you know it's like a real man in quotation marks and you kind of probably gives you a sense of what they're yeah of what it, they're like, after you know what they're after mm -hmm. so but fear could be anything like fear could just be like men feeling like th like a sense of responsibility that could be both good and bad right yeah so I I kind of take it as being fair as being treating everyone one with respect and two fairness so like equality How, and which like percent they, which percent was that 64 bullshit <laughs> like yeah, right. that means it means treating people like treating people equally it's basically it, I take it as equality which right in the crude sense of the word not in the not in the equity Le like legitimately doing the hard work 
sense that we want them to think it is. Yes. Yeah. Like the bare minimum. And I'm sure a lot of guys pat themselves on the back when they think they're doing the fair thing. They do. Right? They also, do. fairness, the way, like, when you talk about being fair, it's almost insulting. Yeah. Like, there's an insulting kind of connotation with fairness. Like, oh, well, I'm just being fair, so here, you can also sit at the table just because I have to. Mm-hmm. Or conversely, like, okay, well, you've, you've said enough. Now we're going to be fair to the other people who are in the room and let the men speak. You know, you know what this lacks from them? Fucking conviction. That's what's lacking mm. is, that, is that fairness lacks conviction. Well, and, and l- the other stat, can I jump ahead to the next stat? The sure. 61% think society is too politically correct these days. And that's 75% for 40 to n- uh, 49-year-olds think the society's too politically correct. Because they're Cause fucking what grew up when yeah. Barbie was saying that math is too hard. You know what I mean? But like it's, it's interesting that the people who are saying they are for fairness, and that's an overlapping number. 64% say they're down with fairness, or they being fair is what makes them a real man. But they think politi- being too politically correct is like, or you know, people are going after that. Well, then to them, being fair doesn't mean calling out misogyny. It doesn't mean calling out, you know, it homophobia, has no transphobia. As exactly as you say, so it has no conviction. There's nothing. I don't think you can be it. for the pr- like fairness in what it ought to mean and like in the fullness of what it means without mm. wait exactly. and, then, and then say yeah. everyone's too politically correct. Yes, yes, sing it, sister. Also, it's like the fact. <laughs> I'm so there with you. <laughs> so there. It's a lot of facial reactions you guys are getting right now. <laughs> a lot of gesticulating. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Finger exactly. snapping. I'm just glad I get to, like, be at full strength on this mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also find it interesting that 61% of the men surveyed find that society is too politically correct because this is the thing is that in theory, political correctness attacks masculinity and masculine structures. Mm-hmm. And so 61% of men are feeling like they are under attack. Yeah. Quote, unquote, yeah. under attack. Yeah. Because they, which is crazy because only 9% of men say that being the boss makes them feel mass, means, is what it means to be a real man. Mm-hmm. That's probably because most of them aren't the boss in <laughs> general. Like, I mean, I, I think, like, largely a lot of us if you are. Ask, if you ask a swath of CEOs, their answer sure, would probably be their, different. Sure, their answer would be different. But for most people, especially, like, the way we're getting work now and, like, the just general sense of, like, lack of permanence to our work and all of that stuff, um, the precarity of, like, our work, the, the gig economy, all of that, I think a lot of people don't, like, Maybe think of independence or entrepreneurship or, like, that sort of thing as opposed to the conventional sense of being the boss. That's really interesting because we've now redefined what it means to work. Yeah, exactly. Like, we've talked about this ad nauseum. Totally. I I think that's got to be feeding into that. Mm -hmm. So, moving ahead, 79% of men think that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. So... (laughs) What about the other 21%? Uh, well, <laughs> they propped up the They're Harvard on Reddit in their mother's decade. basement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
wondering why all of these women don't like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And it's interesting because that question too is is a phrase so like generously for anyone to like go you with it. It's like yeah. it can't even be. It's like so innocuous. It's like equal rights and opportunities it would be against it means like that. it means yeah it's like the right to vote <laughs> so wait a minute 21 percent of men were like nah i'm good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my it's also God. yeah i mean it should have oh not God. should expand the scope of their right like it's like literally just like it's the so same basic. rights as it's men just the same as they currently are <laughs> and 21 percent were like Nah, bitch, I'm good. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> I, I think we need people to know how fucked up that is. Oh my gosh, that, that's yeah. hilarious. But only 18% would describe themselves as feminist. So I'm not. I am surprised. It's how that low ho- number. Is, I am. I am too. But I'm not su- actually surprised. I, I just. I really thought it would be somewhere around the 30% mark. 18 seems really low to me. Yeah, I feel like it's accurate. I. I guess that's the one stat I do believe. Maybe in my heart of hearts, I think it's accurate, but I feel like there's so many men out there protect, like saying, like using the word. I I feel like I see it all the time. But that's the problem with language. That's the downfall of language. Is that without the the language is not only what you say. There's a spirit to it, right? Yes. So it's a lot of people say the right language but do not believe in the spirit of what that means. Oh, I, I agree, which is why I'm yeah. surprised more people didn't just say that they would they were use feminists. the word. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying they're Got actually, you. I don't think oh, okay. they're feminists. I don't think that. I get what you're saying. But so I feel like I can't shake guys away who are like running up to be like, I'm a feminist, I'm a feminist. Uh, but mm. you are the target market. Mm. No. I very much they're disagree. Not gonna, they're not going to say, you know, I'm a raging misogynist to you. no. No, but even on like even online, like even in I mean, and I challenge people because I'm like, no, you don't. I, I don't, don't think get you know that what on that my feed. <laughs> no, so the reason I I th- so I'm surprised that it's 18. percent I would have thought at least 25. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I'm not surprised at how low it is is that I have a lot of I am big into sports. So I mm. know a lot of bros. Sure. I'm so sorry for you. So, and those guys, and my boyfriend's one of them, very much support um, equal rights opportunities, like that first part of that, that thing. But they wouldn't defi- define themselves as feminists because of how, because of the very, very radical, toxic feminism. So that's how, what they, they don't want to tie themselves to those types of people. But they always take the extreme and yes. make it the norm. Yes. I mean, I, this is a bigger conversation and we're going to have it because we think we're going to talk about conservative women who identify as feminists. And we're going to talk about those things at some point on the podcast. But for me, I, I do struggle with, do I want more people using the word or do I want the word to have its most radical meaning? Yeah. And I kind of lean towards the latter. So although I, I'm not, 
advocating that more men should say they're feminists. I'm just surprised that given that Trudeau's saying he's a feminist and all these people are tripping over themselves in media to say they're feminists, that it hasn't caught on more with at least people use applying the label or applying the label of feminist ally. But I would rather the word have a bolder meaning and not be watered down that anyone could call themselves a feminist. But, but that's a bigger ideological no, no, no. debate. No, no, no. I'm here <laughs> for it because I remember in one of our first podcasts, I was like, you know what the problem is? It's letting everybody in your yard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have, okay, so you have a nice walled garden, you know, with beautiful blooming flowers, some some cilantro growing in the sounds in so the lovely. <laughs> I'm super you know? into this. And, you know, it's like it's like an English garden. It's beautiful. There's some pebbles here, but mainly grass. Mm. The grass is nice and green and lush. Do you, you know do landscaping? T- I, Can I no, hire I'm you? This I'm is, just very paint, visual. You're painting a great picture. I know. <laughs> and then some mutt comes up and rubs up in your yard, saying <laughs> that, well, you know, it's all grass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, right. No, no. <laughs> feminism has, white feminism has done this all the time. Right. They've always, they've always, um, they've always welcomed the Taylor Swifts, hmm. the bullshit feminism, and, but they will always knock down people like Rihanna. Mm-hmm. That's my problem. Mm-hmm. And they will let anybody. And what is it with white feminism and the need for men male approval? I'm tired of seeing right. fucking feminists on Twitter talking about what the men think. Who gives a fuck? Okay? <laughs> You're the leader. Why won't women take leadership? This is my question. Why is it that we're like, you know, I wish there were equality and I'm a feminist and blah, 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 blah. And then we let somebody who just says they're a feminist with no backup to say, to to be in your umbrella and just be like, well, you know, it's for everybody. No, mm-hmm. no, it's not for the fucking 21% yeah. who don't even believe in equality. My b- Let's mm-hmm. put up some standards here. My biggest pet peeve is going to an event where mm-hmm. someone like leads off a discussion about feminism by being like, so show of hands, do you guys think men and women should be equal? They're like... And people raise their hand, like, unknowingly and all innocent and naive. And like, well, you know what? You're all feminists because that's what feminism means. It's like, this is the worst icebreaker ever. People do it all the time. They do it on social media. It makes me cringe every time it happens. Like, no, it's got to be more than that. It's not do you think men or women are equal. First of all, that's status quo shit. Like, who, like, like, we're 21 le- we're percent, like, who, equal. yeah, we're, we're equal. That It's done. Like, you know, and even so, like, and yes, there are still like advancements that need to happen, but that's like that—that's where we get into the nitty-gritty of what feminism means. Meaning that you have to have, you know, other standards and other measures that you're applying. Like this idea of equal, like it's just such nonsense, and people keep repeating that because it's the easiest way to get recruits. And it's like I don't low-hanging fruits, low-hanging fruit, and it's like I don't think the movement benefits by being this like large grouping of like people haphazardly assembled because they believe in like base level equ- like equality it, it's successful by pushing people to think in more radical terms for real change i don't know well change is radical change has to be right i mean change isn't like like, like let's you want the laws better <laughs> like it doesn't it yeah. doesn't really it doesn't happen without that radical element um 
and it that radical element usually comes from outside the system. Yeah, it's not Instagram feminism. No. Ooh. I think we have a title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. Well, no, I was just thinking about um, the the concerns that you and I had, Erica, regarding the Women's March this mm-hmm. past year. Yeah. And in, and in general, the Women's March from the past Great pod, two years. by the way. That was a good one. Um, is that, fine, sure, march for equality, march for equity, but these people are only showing up one day a year. Mm-hmm. They're showing up to get their Instagram post. Change is hard. Feminism, being a true feminist, is uncomfortable work day in and day out. And I think that if you think you really are a feminist, at the end of every day, you should be able to ask yourself, how is a feminist buzzkill today? What did I do to make tangible action on the movement? Mm-hmm. And if totally. just to check in with yourself. I'm nodding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. that goes for it's male allies. Pe- yes. Male allies, women. People don't uh, want other to genders. be uncomfortable, and they fear that awkward silence. It and... You know, if I you're mean, n- yeah. yeah. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not learning something new. And you're not challenging others. You're n- yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so back to the survey. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, there's more. <laughs> oh, my God. There's this is just a piece. There's some good ones. Okay. 37% think Justin Trudeau is manlier than Donald Trump. Oh. Wait. 12% call it a tie. <laughs> Hold on. And 33% think neither is manly well i mean <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry this makes no sense well if manliness is fairness and fair there's an equation here so <laughs> yes because if 64 percent of men surveyed think that being fair is a big part of what it means to be a man then how are only how are 33 percent not saying that justin trudeau is not manlier <laughs> I don't. Like You're jealous. <laughs> is it because yeah, it's because he's attractive. He's like I really do think there's some there's some jealousy in there. It's like they hate him because he is exactly the pro the archetype for what success has been has been marketed to us. And to a degree, I think it's also his he does have a softness that some that may put off some other men. Yes, but I also does is does the fact that he so publicly and willingly identifies as a feminist turn other men off? Oh, probably. Yeah. But that's what it, I guess that's what I'm saying about softness. Like, also, this, the language that he uses, it's more of his, that emotional. His, he's, he's very willing to cry on camera. Right. Yeah. I think that makes people uncomfortable. Um, and it's, and it's, it, it goes to the question um, what people think is manly and what, what they think of, what they associate when they you think of that language. You know what would have been a great... If they if they if they compare Trudeau with Obama, because I'm yeah. wondering if Obama being black inserts a certain level of what we think of as masculinity. Yeah, that'd be Just interesting because they're very similar in general. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the way they speak, the way they emote, the mm. way they present themselves um, is very. Although similar. Obama seems to be more genuine in general, sorry, he oh, just comes off that way. I totally agree. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Justin Trudeau is basically walking in his footsteps in, in terms of that sense, right? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but whatever. Uh, but for but, sure, but, I but think besides that, that, you know. I, I think, yeah, how, how we um, can see, like, how we um, 
characterize or, or imagine uh, racialized men and what that like and their ma and their manhood and and mask and whether or not they fit into our general ideas of masculinity is really interesting to unpack. Yeah. I'm not sure if the survey gets too far into that because I mean that's a big discussion in representation in, in film and TV around. Um, uh, for example, Asian men being rep like represented yeah. as as not being manly, and and I wonder. I'm sure the general pub public also shares that presumption. Um, so now onto the Me Too topic. When women talk about the pervasiveness of sexual harassment, 25% of men who responded to this survey said that it evokes zero emotion in them. Zero. What? They feel nothing. Wait, what percent? 25. Oh, it must be that same percentage. 42% 40, yeah. said it makes them feel sad. 32% it makes them feel angry. 12% it makes said that makes them feel bored. 9% said it makes them feel persecuted. I mean, maybe the 25% who said it makes them feel nothing or like heavily sedated or something, but like I don't know how <laughs> it makes you feel absolutely nothing at all. Um, angry, I, I mean, you know, we like anger. I hope it's the good kind of anger, but yeah. I kind of doubt it is. It's probably a combination. It, it, yeah, maybe it's 50-50. It's unclear what the anger means, but bored is, is I think, probably the most <laughs> offensive response. Yeah. Because a guilty persecuted, yeah, it's probably because you're a fucking rapist, but the people who answered bored, that's just, that's just cruel. That's in <laughs> insulting. They're there's bored nothing, by the there's Me Too nothing, movement? There's nothing worse than apathy. There's nothing worse yeah. than apathy. No. So wait, they're just bored. Like it's just. So too it's like much. the answer bores Ho them. Like, oh, enough already. Let's move on. I yeah. don't mean. I don't know. We're just projecting, but. <laughs> um, and so another question: Have you benefited professionally from being a man? I fucking hate this answer. Mm -hmm. That's a stupid question. First, well, sure. Fifty-one percent say nope. Well, of course they would say no. 28% say, yes, I have more opportunities from being a man. 13% said, 13 said, yes, I'm paid more. Another 13% said, yes, I have more confidence. And 11% said, women benefit because of gender. How much, sir? 11. 11. Mm. You'd cool. have to, I mean, cool. I would love to know the breakdown by industry that people worked in. Ooh, that would be mm. a good one. Because that... that I think maybe that 11% is attributable to something. Like, th there are certain industries, right, sure. where that would be different. Um, but, oof, yeah. Um, however, 8% prefer to work for a women boss. That's nice. Just 8%, but we'll take it. 13% prefer to work for a man. 79% have no preference. That's good. That's, uh, I like that one. That's uh, positive. It could have been way worse. You don't know. Actually, idea. yeah, if we do, like, an <laughs> additive scale in terms of the positive <laughs> responses they do outweigh the negative <laughs> whatever the reason it's a stupid question is that you don't know how there's there's asymmetric information there so you know how much you you make you don't know how women on average make in your same job so mm. you have nothing to really compare it to it's it's a snow it, it really is a straw man question it was it's awful because um I I don't know how anybody could answer that with full information. I mean without I full information. Yeah. 
I don't I don't trust or like any polling for that reason because it's really hard to get into the thinking of people. I much prefer qual like more qualitative assessments. But I mean, I, yeah, the the data is there. I would I would want them to kind of repose and reformulate whatever the results of the survey were to get us some more like closer like which of the people who answered fairness on this one question of what ma defines masculinity then answered this in this way on the other questions. Yeah. Um, like, if someone wants to give me the raw data, I mean, I, I don't know what to do with it, cause I, but I've got Erica, so we could probably work something out <laughs> and, like, get get at these, like, <laughs> you know, we yeah. and Aaron will write the, the questions. Yeah, right? Like, and, and how, I mean, we it, it won't answer causation, but we can get some more corollaries between how people responded um, and I'm sure they have some demographic data that would be really interesting to see. Well, self um, responses by self are inherently oh, are inherently biased yeah. and tricky. Yeah, I think we have too many of these surveys that call for self responses instead of taking more demographic data. But the problem with demographic data is that it's general, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and it doesn't get at um a lot of what you want it to get at yeah. there's 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 a limit like qualitative data matters and i think that sometimes we don't give enough credence to that and the reason is is because random data that you need to crunch numbers and stuff is very general and there's some t there's sometimes where the other th the other problem is sometimes you can't compare the answers mm -hmm. and that's a problem too there's just I just find that self-reporting has its own inherent um, uh, statistical bias. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Self-report surveys are... I mean, yeah. it's like online dating, you know? Like, oh, no gosh. <laughs> that's where souls go to die. No, but I mean, just like think about it. It's like you write this profile, and this is sort of what this is. You're responding based on what you, how you perceive yourself. And it may not be like an intentional misleading of the surveyor or an intentional misleading of people looking at your dating profile, but it's the version of yourself that you think is true and you're omitting all sorts of things that maybe you're not aware that you do or don't do. Or mm -hmm. um, It doesn't have to be out of a malicious or like ma um, you know, malice or malintent, but yeah. it's, it's all of our self-perceptions are inherently warped. And that was the problem with the, with the um, polling results from the 2016 election, right? Is oh my that gosh, yeah is that people didn't really want to admit that they had voted for Trump. Or the way had, the questions were posed. Or the posed. way the questions were yeah. posed. And then if you, you don't pose the questions sort of equally, mm -hmm. then you have an inherent bias there. It's right, just, or you yeah. ask people, are they upset about, you know, or are they dissatisfied with where they are now? And most people answer, yes, they are. It doesn't really get you to what are they dissatisfied about or who their anger is directed at. Exactly. Um, is it, you know, and that's why. Maybe their relationships are falling right. apart. I mean, you know what I mean? And yeah, the, and or, yeah, or just like you weren't, or, or the, poli like the, where they attribute the blame. Um, yeah, that's the other thing. You know, thing. structurally. Yeah. Um, so you had all these people who actually did want a more national trade, nationalistic, like trade policy and closed borders and all this stuff. They were being at, like asked about their dissatisfaction. Well, they weren't dissatisfied with the government per se. They were dissatisfied with outsiders because all this fear had been dredged up in them. And the questions never really got to but they people's sense government. of dislocation. Oh, they do hate government. But yeah. we were so quick to say, oh, it's just the government of the day. Or, you know, they might support another Republican candidate or right. whatever. Because th the data was shit from the beginning. Yeah, it was. And it was. Yeah. Um, even like the Republican polls among themselves were shit. 
the connect. And I don't think people appreciated yeah. like where the dissatisfaction was coming from. Right. Um, Which is why we've been through like a year and a, a half of think pieces on it. Yeah, I would never trust. I, do, I just don't trust polling data. Sorry. Sorry, half of Ottawa who does that kind of work. <laughs> eh. Stay tuned for rent and receipts. <laughs> Now we're on rent and receipts, and this is where we each bring a story or news item to share with the others, and then rant about it, obviously. <laughs> Amy, do you want to go first? Sure, happy to. So um, my contribution for this week, uh, reflecting on a Globe and Mail op-ed that was uh, in the on the paper or on the site on Monday uh, from CTV personality, uh, one of the co-hosts of The Social, Marcy Ian. Uh, she's a black woman who was writing about her experience, her repeated experience of being stopped driving while black. Uh, she was stopped four times in the last eight months. Um, I think maybe even more than that, but at least had um, uh, four tickets in the last four months uh, for, for, for having been stopped, having arguably broken no laws, she says. Wow. Um, and in the most recent incident um, that kind of like motivated her to finally write about this, she was stopped uh, in her own driveway in the neighborhood that she's lived in for 13 years. Um, and the police officer said that she had, you know, not stopped at a stop sign as she was getting into, like, as she was pulling in. She says, you know, I was wearing a parka, I was wearing a hood. I thought, um, I, I have, I, I know what this feels like. I've experienced this. And I, you know, I know what racial discrimination is. And, I, and I'm very, and I'm, I, this is it. I'm putting it out there that I'm, I'm being stopped. Uh, because of this discrimina discriminatory um, uh, perspective from police. And we know that in Toronto, which is where um, Marcian lives, uh, there is a huge um, issue of carding, of, of stopping uh, people uh, who are racialized and mostly black people um, while driving and, and uh, requesting identification. Um, so, you know, the uh, op-ed um, go goes public and unfortunately, then police officers start coming for, um, for the, the you know for the author for this prominent CTV personality, um, and saying that um, and actually the officer who stops her replies to her on Twitter, replies to Marcy in and says I viewed the video footage of your vehicle stop because they have cameras now. Um, you were stopped because you were of your driving behavior. You failed to stop at a stop sign. It was dark. Your race was not visible on the video. It only became apparent when you stepped out of the vehicle in your driveway. Um, and then you have a bunch of retired cops, current cops, replying um, and adding to it. Um, Deputy Chief uh, Shauna Coxon tweeted, we are accountable. The whole event, including the traffic interaction, is on camera. The ethnicity of the driver is not visible until after she was pulled over. When she exits the car, uh, uh, when she pulls over and then when she exits the car. The chief invited her uh, last night on CP4 to come and view the video. Uh, and, and, you know, and then uh, other people are piling on, um, as that Twitter culture is, but these people are largely police officers or law enforcement people, um, again, kind of going in on this. And it's just really frustrating uh, to see that whether or not, the, you know, she actually did miss that stop. Um, is one thing, but it sort of still ignores her overall experience and what the op-ed is speaking to, which is which we know is a systemic problem. Um, and it's certainly the perception, uh, and it's certainly there is also that public perception that police officers um, do stop people, um, you know, driving while black. 
um, and that's racial profiling has it has been a systemic issue plaguing the police force and yet they're out here going out of their way to make this very public figure who's you know putting this her own experience over many months not just this one incident with in her driveway but many other incidences in this op-ed um, and using it as a chance to go after her I mean it's like they're not doing themselves any favors they're not talking about instead of responding to the op-ed by saying you know we, we are addressing disproportionate street checks of black and brown men or we are um, you know going to um, you know look it's like we're, we are taking this issue seriously we are training people we're doing this that and the other thing um, instead they go in on her and fact check her and act like you know um, she's the one who's at fault here. Um, it's just not a good look. And it comes at the same time that Chief Sanders, the chief of police in Toronto, um, had uh, written uh, or had come out saying uh, that, uh, and we've talked about this story before, that there of the serial killer in, the, in Toronto's gay village. Um, and essentially, Chief Sanders is now saying the issue is that residents of the gay village hadn't, hadn't sounded the alarm, hadn't raised the issue sooner, and weren't cooperative with police investigations, which is factually untrue on so many levels, but again, not like, it shows you how, um, uh, like how much the pol Toronto Police Service is putting blame on marginalized communities for their own, ex like for their experiences of, of racism, as opposed to taking any love, any, even the slightest degree of ownership over some potential, like even a sliver of wrongdoing. They don't take ownership. Actually, you know what? This is, this is just so not a good look for Toronto police. Not a good look. It is, um, it w to me it's unconscionable that, uh, that police officers can band together and basically troll you online. I don't know how that's okay. That's crazy to me. That is fucked. Especially that because she is a public That persona. alone. And also the optics of it for them, like, now I've lost faith in what you're doing. Like, put out an official statement, you know? Like, if that's the issue, why is the individual officer who stopped her writing, like, tweeting back at her and then other people are piling on? Like, that makes me feel unsafe. You, it, it doesn't acknowledge that racialized people feel unsafe interacting with police in general because we've been made to feel that way. But now you've like, you've you, it also sucks the legitimacy out of what they're saying. Like take an official stance, release the video, and put out a statement um, if that's if that's the position you want to take. Yeah. So I like <laughs> how how this fuckery became more fuckery. I I just they do themselves no favors. They they don't seem. I think the whole idea of serving the public with the police has gone out the window a long time ago. And I, fe I don't feel comfortable with people like that having guns. I just don't. <laughs> Definitely not. That, like, in, in general, I think police services need a general overhaul. Mm -hmm. um, what, it, what I see is a bureaucracy that is just there to protect themselves and not you, obviously. I mean, like, I'm saying this, you know, I can, I can see black people rolling their eyes right now. Like, wow, do you really have to explain this? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and uh, uh, I, I don't think, I would like, I, I would like to see a black person who hasn't been tinged by the police, to be honest. They are increasingly militarized, well-budgeted, 
And they keep killing people. They keep not only killing people, but they keep uh, admonishing people, and they keep trolling people online. Mm -hmm. I mean, how is this acceptable? Really, my question is, and John Tory needs to wear this. Mm -hmm. He needs to start wearing some of these police yeah. issues. Because I know he sent his little lapdog, Chief Sanders, to clean up the mess and whatever, because Chief Sanders does act like a damn lapdog. Um, I don't know what original thought this man has had in his head, to be honest. But John Tory is ultimately responsible and my question is, when, when, where did the, where did accountability go out the window? Police are not accountable for their actions. Yes, there's civilian oversight here, which is really just ex-police officers. Mm -hmm. It's a joke. Mm -hmm. Okay, and at the end of the day, apparently uh, they have to start killing white kids because that's when people will will take notice. Okay. I just would also add, like, it's just so dis again, and I said this earlier, but it, I think I would encourage people to read the original op-ed um, that's in the Globe and Mail, because it, you know, she's speaking like so honestly about what it feels like to have been stopped and like how easy, uneasy it made her feel to have that whole interaction, to be questioned about whether she lived there, to be lectured about the stop sign issue, um, and you know, you know that there's a school there, and her having to. Um, say, well, yeah, I've lived here for 13 years. My daughter goes to that school. Of course, I heeded the stop sign. Um, but just even everything about that interaction and all police interactions, how uneasy it makes, uh, made her, in particular, made Marcin feel, um, we can't discount those, um, those feelings. And I think like when police don't account for um, marginalized communities, I guess, like, like being programmed to fear police and, and having all that like background of, of what those interactions have often resulted in fa either fatalities or you know wrongful arrests or whatever else like those are real things people like experience when they interact with you how are you going to fix that and same with the LGBTQ plus community like you can't say they didn't engage police first of all they they did and there's that community in the gay village has long sounded the alarm about missing people from their community. Um, but if you feel like they're not communicating with you effectively, then you have to ask yourself, why is that? And it's probably because there's a history of violence and policing of, you know, of people from that community. And what are you going to do to, like, either fix that relationship and or know your place and know how to come at it or try non, you know, like, n not the typical methods that you're Maybe used to Maybe they shouldn't have the march and the parade next year. Don't invite them to your fucking I really parade. hope this yeah. is finally the thing that, like, where Pride puts, like, I mean, Pride, yeah, I mean, Pride Parade is, is being co-opted by, for so many reasons, but uh, for sure, I think the this, this has to be the end of that police uh, in uniform discussion. And yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see. The I'm summer not, is coming up, so I'm not, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But, you know, Pride really should put their foot down. But at the end of the day, I, I'm tired of these, these, these organizations that blossom into TD logo-wearing yeah. motherfuckers, okay, who lose their activist background because they are so wanting to be corporate. Mm -hmm. They want to be included and validated in a corporate model. And so they do not come out 
when it matters. I would like to see how Pride responds to this, for the Pride Parade especially. Because this is their marketing document, it, or if you really want to think about it, is that parade. I think a lot of people feel Pride Parade doesn't speak for them anymore because it of has course. been co-opted. And it's become um, a marketing So I don't want to put too yeah. much stock into like Pride, the pr like Pride Parade, but I think it will expose the hypocrisy of the people at the helm if they ignore the con real concerns of their community by continuing to have the parade. Because um, you know, full of uniformed cops uh, marching in so-called so solidarity. Yes. It'll be shown for the sham that it is if they go ahead with I it. I can't wait. Yeah. I really <laughs> can't wait. Because I'm, I'm, I, the police, the police are becoming a cancer. And the reason is, is because they take no responsibility. They do not engage in community policing. They they want to lock up as many marginalized people as possible and there's no recourse mm -hmm. that's my that's my point yeah. and then we and then we doubly fund them so that they can get militarized and do it to a lot more people more heinously okay so my rented receipts this week is a study from the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., which I know right now is kind of unreliable in terms of progressive issues. <laughs> but uh, they, their recent study, I guess, which was being undertaken under the Obama administration, surprised they got this published, to be honest, found that people of color face more air pollution than white people, and black people bear the biggest environmental burden of any group. So I've mentioned this before, uh, probably once, maybe twice. But uh, basically years of research has suggested that minority communities face an outsized burden of air and water pollution and get diagnosed with additional health problems as a result. Uh, one EPA researcher, um, Ehab Makati, says, quote, our study contributes to the narrative by providing a system systematic study of burden by race, ethnicity, and poverty status across the entire U.S. The study tracked the location and quantity of air pollutants emitted by refineries and factories using the EPA's National Emissions Inventory. The team then compared the emissions with the demographics of communities within two and a half miles of each facility using data from the U.S. Census. The new report found that the average U.S. resident lives near about five emission sources, but the authors noted that, quote, blacks in particular are likely to live in high emission areas. So compared to the average American, black U.S. residents are exposed to 1.54 times more fine particle matter, which is a pollutant that contributes to haze and has been linked to heart and lung diseases. Hispanic U.S. residents are exposed to 1.2 times more fine particle matter. And people below the poverty line were exposed to 1.35 times more fine, pollutant, fine particle matter. So every state except Virginia, North Dakota, New Mexico, Maryland, and the District of Columbia found that non-white people have a higher exposure to particle matter than white people. The worst disparity ex exists in Indiana and, and Alabama where people of color were exposed to more than twice as many particle pollutants as white people. So despite years of research that has suggested basically this exact same result, um, people are still, the idea still faces a lot of detractors. 
So the NAACP, NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, um, published a report sa that said that health disparities in black communities to the observation um, of one million black people live within a half mile of petroleum operations and 6.7 million live in country counties with power plants. Uh, the American Petroleum Institute disputed the findings saying that these health disparities were actually attributed to genetics, indoor allergens, and unequal access to preventative care. Sure. Uh, this new study now refutes that argument with science and statistics and shows that factories are located in low-income communities because the land there is less expensive. Um, this study also adds to a vast body of research showing unequal protections and unequal burden of pollution, pollution borne by poor people and poor people of color. Mm -hmm. Well, they say environmental issues are the new Jim Crow. Well, I know everything's the new Jim Crow, <laughs> but you know, I, um, um, there is a guy, Van Newkirk, uh, who wrote a piece in The Atlantic um, about the racism in environmental politics. And, you know, we just have to look at Flint, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was what I was thinking of the whole time. Yeah. It, it Flint's a great example. I think the economic, um, the, like it's clearly the economic piece where people work and the low income jobs that they work that are still in very industrial. Um, you know, I'm from Windsor slash like very much exposed to Detroit and our air, like the air pollution in that part of the world um, is, you know, some of the highest, highest cancer rates in North America yeah. are found there. Um, because of the auto plants that are there. Um, you know, that's something we never talk yeah, about. Yeah, and, wow. and I mean, Detroit being the most, um, like the blackest city still probably in the States or the most with, um, uh, and certainly in the, the urban core where you are getting the most of that air pollution. And even without the plants there, there is, I mean, as much as they were at their height, there still is that um, happening. And, and, not, and, no, and no one talks about that when they talk about yeah, um, and the and issues in Michigan. And, and so for those who who don't know, um, around the uh, turn of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, was the great migration of black people from the United States South to the North to work in these, in these factories, mm -hmm. in these industries. And the great draw was that they paid equal wages. Yeah. And so when they paid equal wages, a whole bunch, a lot of black people uprooted from the South to the North, mm -hmm. to Detroit. So what I'm saying is, is that... And then there was white flight as well. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, until they come back in and try yeah. to gentrify. Yeah. But anyway, this is not by accident. Mm. It, it is not, uh, oops. It's not like that. Flint was not an oops. Flint was, yeah. I would almost say premeditated, and um, at the very least gross negligence. At, at the very yeah. least, and that's being generous. Yeah. So, yeah. And by the way, I noticed that environmentalism, the environmentalists, have said nothing about this. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because this. Um, environmental racism is a perfect example of why a gender-based analysis 
is useful. I mean, not that like the pl power plants aren't going to be, or the like the manufacturers aren't going to be doing it. They're just going to do whatever the fuck's cheapest for their bottom <laughs> line. But in terms of policy and regulations yeah. on reform, top yeah. of those um, companies, those manufacturers, we can then, you know, reduce emissions. We can, whatever. I don't know environmental policy, <laughs> but we can at least like examine the different groups that could be impacted by where these plants are located and the impact that, you know, the, the regulations would have on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I in general, there's been a huge, there's, there's always been, on, even on a global scale, um, a racial element uh, and racial inequality to how we talk about environmental issues and, and a disproportionate uh, adverse impact happening to racialized people across the globe. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's the global south and it's areas, um, uh, in, in areas like that uh, are populated by non-white people that have the most uh, to lose now um, in terms of whether it's territory and health effects and um, being affected by, you know, uh, weather phenomena that we've never had before as a result of climate change. And that's why it's so easy for people to ignore because we, we often ignore those, those folks and demographics. Can I also insert something here that when you have decided that industry should pay very little tax, mm -hmm. then yeah. the money for the cleanup is gone. Yeah, that's right. So Amazon, as as I've seen, apparently barely paid any tax last year. That shocked me. I was floored. I when was I, saw I was that. angry. They also have terrible working conditions for the people who work in their distribution centers. Like people frequently yep. are ill and yep. and work inordinate hours and like yep. there's um gets like they get sick physically in the environment in which they work. Mm -hmm. Um and that I mean that's troubling to know that that company is also not then contributing for any social benefits their workers may benefit from, like into the like pu in terms of a public sense, whether it's right. workers' comp or whatever else. Exactly. Like regime, let alone environmental cleanup. Okay, so yeah. you bring up a good point here. Okay, number one. When private enterprise does not take care of benefits, we'll all be paying for those benefits come hell or high water. We will pay for it in some way, and yeah. it will be more than if private enterprise had paid for it. At the outset. At the yeah. outset, in terms of prevention and care. Mm -hmm. So my rent and receipts is the feminism of Black Panther. Because, oh my gosh, okay. So, so I, when I left that theater, I said, holy fuck. I said to my boyfriend, I'm like, that is the most feminist movie ever and he's like yeah i could totally see you there <laughs> <laughs> i was like i was just okay so what i loved about this movie in terms of just its feminism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that i felt it gave us almost a blueprint of what equanimity looks like like what an equal society looks like in terms of gender um the kid, like, where do I start? Okay, so, um, the king's sister. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, is the technological She's genius. Sorry, okay. is this a spoiler Favorite. conversation? Because if it's spoilers, it's then not. It's not a spoiler. Then go forward. It's not like, a like okay, our listeners. Now, okay. Our listeners can just oh, okay. go forward. Listeners, there are going to be a lot of spoilers. Are we gonna do spo All right. 
that wasn't one. I don't think it's we're going to do specific spoilers. But if you if you want to go in totally not knowing, yeah. or you're afraid of spoilers, or you think it might be a spoiler, just fast forward. Yes. Can I leave? Just kidding. Hey, oh. That's on you, dude. Yo. It took you three weeks to see it, or not, still not at all. <gasps> dude. I know. I've worked the past 28 days. Okay. If you cared enough, you would have seen it. <laughs> I, I was so tired <laughs> the other night, I cried. Oh, so. oh, I'm sorry. I take it. Back. I hate that exhaustion cry. It, uh, that is awful. It is just y- all you could do is go to sleep after that. That's it. Yeah. In That's two all. weeks, we're taking you though. Yeah. Great. It's just that. <laughs> it's just that to to retain my black card, I had to see it during Black History Month, and then somebody was like, "You only saw it once." I was like, I, uh, "What the fuck?" I'm like, "What more do I have to do?" <laughs> anyway. I, aren't you glad I'm on this mic today? <laughs> uh, so, like, what I loved about it was that, yeah, the tech. So, the 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 king's sister is a technological. The princess is a technological genius who basically powers technology. The whole technology about Wakanda, which is a technological marvel, but nobody knows that because they're just seen and reported on as a poor African nation. By the way, the amount of commentaries for this in terms of the state of the world, black relationships with the outside world, gentrification, there was a lot of commentary. So, and it was just so, so the other part is that um, Okoye, who is uh, like the king's guard, is um, a woman, and she is just a fucking warrior. I loved it. I loved all of that. She was amazing. She was amazing. Great I lo- performance. I know. I did yeah. love her more than Lupita, and I didn't I think did I would. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Lupita th- was great, but just like character wise. Yes. Yeah. It was just seemed a more powerful character. And not something we'd seen before. Right. Yeah. Right. Because what. I think what people have to appreciate is that there wasn't this overstep to push these ideas down your throat. It just was. I never felt that it was preachy at all. Exactly. It definitely came at it on it, like honestly. Exactly. It, for you to like kind of reach these conclusions. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, na- Lupita's character, Nasima Navi. I anyway. I'm I'm sorry. I everybody knows. She's I'm bad. bad with names. I'm totally bad. <laughs> Um, anyway, her character was more, I guess, fulsome and wholesome in a feminine way mm-hmm. without giving up feminism. Yes. That's mm-hmm. what I saw. Yeah. And I feel like these women were allowed to be or were constructed to be full, functioning, equal partners. Mm-hmm in the survival and th- and thrive like this thriving nation and i felt like oh my gosh this is what equality would look like if it were real and you know Roxanne Gay had a had a had a piece of writing this and i'm like i, c- I see you Roxanne i see you <laughs> because she like i know that this is a lot because of her and her writing and how the characters were developed, but I thought it was just brilliant. Anyway, there's an article to go to this. Um, 
and it compares the feminism of Wonder Woman to Black Panther. Did either of you see Wonder Woman? I did not. I no. did not see it. <laughs> I did not see it, and I would not see it, but that's for a whole other political reason. Okay. Oh, yes. Sorry, girl. That's okay. I, I just got the political yeah. reason. I, mean, I just got I, it. I, wanna, I wanted to see it. I was looking forward to seeing it, but, I mean, it's, it's riddled in hypocrisy when the yeah. lead is a Zionist child killer. It's like if you put Terrence... Clarence Thomas and Aaron <laughs> Brockovich or something. You know, it, it would just be too much. I get it. Um, so this article is basically talking about the superior feminism of Black Panther. So what she does is she compares Black Panther to Wonder Woman. So on Wonder Woman, sh what she said is, though the thought of a world without men is seductive when faced with the dangers of toxic masculinity on all society, I've come to believe removing oneself from quote-unquote a man's world to only focus on a woman-based culture devoid of men is to ignore a larger part of society. Toxic masculinity, in fact, affects men in a man's world just as badly as it does women, if only in other ways. I believe to ignore those effects and abandon the rest of the world to its own devices is tr to truly ignore the premise of feminism's positive impact on the world. By separating themselves away from men, the Amazons evolved into a utopian society to the detriment of the rest of the world. Their influence could have changed the world if only they'd emerged from their hiding sooner. And this is the central conflict in Black Panther. It's like, do we open up to the rest of the world and risk our way of living? Or do we stay closed and kind of just keep everything in house. Right. And whether there is a sense of obligation or duty to, right. to step up in that to way. To step up. Exactly. Um, now, what she says about Wakanda is this. By contrast, we have Wakanda. Though Wakanda is an isolationist society in regards to the rest of the world, and this person says a subject for, m for much debate elsewhere and addressed directly in the film, it is also well-balanced, nearly utopian society growing technologically and societally with each passing generation while still holding on to its ancient, tr ancient traditions. Yet unlike other societies, Wakanda does not focus on patriarchal ideology just despite its male-dominated leadership. And in brackets she says, Wakanda has a history of only kings on the throne. Spoiler alert, Shuri becomes the first woman leader in the comics. So that's the, 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 the king's sister we were talking about. Anyway, instead, Wakanda has fully integrated the idea of women as equals, creating a society where women are not only respected, but accepted without surprise when in positions of power. Boom. I totally agree with that. Um, I also noticed this. The equality of the women mm -hmm. did not result in a demasculinization of the men. Mm. That and is really true. And yeah, that is key. Mm -hmm. I think when we, you know, what we saw was a more um, uh, gracious leader, mm -hmm. but also what we saw were the council of women taking, taken in equal part yeah. with the council of men. And 
that just seeing it on screen without you being like pushed into it no. was magical to me. And, and and you get there like you understand that they have that role because they also get equal screen time. So the way the film tells the story leaves you with the impression that as much as it's an ensemble cast pulling this off in the fictional universe in which it exists, they have that much say. Yes. Yeah. Equal screen time is yeah. a beautiful example yeah. as we roll into the Academy Awards tonight. Oof. Um is anybody watching that? I am. My oh. friend's throwing an Oscars for you. I'm very <laughs> excited. It's also very competitive, and I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I know Aaron's not interested. I didn't have to ask this really? question. No. Oh, I'm I, She's I, interested in the fashion, though. Yeah. I, yeah. I, All right. I don't care about the awards that much. I haven't, I've seen I, Tonya. That's What? How did you? I've seen you saw get you, you saw Get Out. No. What? <gasps> I, I was told it was scary and not to see it. No, oh, it's so no. worth it. Who told you that? It is a little. It's definitely not not scary, Paul but it's worth me, it. My friend told me. Oh. It's 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 worth it. It's worth it. It's so worth it. I can't even. I begin. will say I did try to watch it on a plane and then it didn't work. So. Oh, so oh, good effort. Good effort. Good effort. Just not meant to happen. All right. Oh. Um, one of these Aaron. days. Okay. We we need to sit Erin down and have a par <laughs> have like and sequester her and have <laughs> and she will thank us for this as much as she rolls her eyes right now. Uh, <laughs> that's a, a lot I, of eye so, rolling. So I, my question is is like now okay, you're saying that like the women are literally equal to the men and it hasn't sacrificed the the masculinity of the men. So going back to like what we were talking about in the last segment with the the man survey, how can we get men in in reality? instead of a pretend place to think that like how like that's obviously baked into their culture mm -hmm. so how what what does it look like to get there or do we just be like ah fuck it well i'm just glad that we have like even like art is so important first yeah. of mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. because i'm glad we have a movie now to say you know what something aspirational there's something aspirational and i feel like this could happen mm -hmm. like not in my generation or our generation mine our generation, that ain't gonna happen. But, however, I really do think that I don't, let's put it this way. I do not think that it was that far-fetched. Mm. That's my point, is that I don't think where, where I've seen societies with strong women I I have never thought of the men as quote unquote less masculine. Um, I will say there there are, I mean it's not a it's not per, like well not that it's a, it's not a or perfect my idea of masculinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I, I was just gonna say about Wakanda though it's not like a perfect utopia. No, um, you know there is tr tribalism which I'm okay with obviously like that's fine and it's good that that's represented and how the different tribes interact. But like in, you know, in the one kind of adversarial mountain tribe that's like headed by Mbaku, they are far more like traditional masculinity and all of the like muscle of that tribe is all men in like very traditional um, displays of like might and masculinity. Um, and uh, one of the other critiques also of the film was that it didn't have, despite having these relationships in the comics was very heteronormative and didn't have any depictions of 
um, you know, different ways of either like uh, experiencing gender identity and let alone um, having same sex relationships portrayed. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, just, just to caution people, like I don't, I, it's not without its critique, it's also not the perfect utopia, but definitely as far as what we've seen, certainly in this superhero genre, um, it's like leaps and bounds. I, you know what it was? You know what was so exciting about this movie for me? Is that it reflected my idea of what femininity is. And that femininity and strength tends to be separated mm -hmm. into, um, like there's an inherent weakness in the portrayal of femininity in Western culture. And I was just glad to see on screen people who I'm like, I feel like my auntie could be up there. You know what I mean? And, and this idea of, of, of not separating femininity, strength, beauty, intelligence, mm -hmm. um, um, authority. And, and I will give that to Angela Bassett too because I think we need to bring her in, is, yeah. that, is that there's a grace, strength, and authority that she brought to her role without saying anything. And I don't think that, that we are even understanding like how powerful that is. Mm -hmm. It is, it really, when Okoye like kicked ass in a dress and then threw her wig, yes. uh, I was all, of, there's a spoiler. That's a, yeah, yeah for the first uh, half of the movie, spoiler. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was, I was like this, to oh, me in a gown, to me that was a beautiful expression of what I see femininity as. And as being able, you don't have to kick ass. Don't get not in that, not in no, a physical it can mean way. Anything, yeah. It can mean anything, but it's about it's about that respect that she garnered. It's about that strength. It's yeah, the fact and being that being unapologetic she with, that, unap with the wig talk right. about what her authentic right. identity was. Exactly, yeah. because she made a comment about the wig right before <laughs> she she went in, and I thought I was just so excited to see that on screen. So fucking excited. That's I'm just great so gift. excited. That's I the best gift of the again. movie is the wig time. Oh my God. <laughs> we're Aaron! going. We're taking Aaron. In we got to take Aaron. We're definitely we have going. To, okay, we're taking Let's Aaron. go VIP. <gasps> yes. I feel well, like I mean if drinking Ottawa, is involved. Uh, <laughs> I feel like if drinking is still. involved, Aaron might be incentivized. No, I want to go. I just <laughs> don't have And now we're on misogynist of the week. So as we alluded to earlier in the episode, Amy and I wrote an op-ed for the Ottawa Citizen this week in response to some comments made by our mayor. So basically, one of the city councillors, Diane Deans, is advocating for a women's bureau and a women's liaison to be added to uh, Ottawa City Hall. So the bureau uh, would just be maybe a department, maybe a, like it could be could be anything from three to 20 employees, for example, mm -hmm. and the liaison role would be given to an existing councillor, city councillor, um, and it's largely ceremonial, but would be kind of an advocate for these issues and would therefore not be adding any sort of HR resources that aren't already committed. Uh, when asked about this, the mayor, Jim Watson, said that, quote, he's not interested in creating a big bureaucracy and would rather see the money for women's issues and equality 
be put into actual programs. Which, fine. It sounds innocent enough. That's, that's fine. And you know what? That's not a wrong answer. But there's an assumption there. I just, first of all, I, can we, I just want to just jump right in. I'm so angry. So <laughs> we can't just jump right in. I know, I know. <laughs> so the issue is that, one, the mayor is dismissive of um, this new Women's Bureau, assuming that after having done no costing, no studying of the issue, that it would add to the bureaucracy. Two, is dismissing the idea of adding a ceremonial role to an existing counselor's portfolio would, would be adding to the bureaucracy when we already have liaisons for sports, refugee settlement, housing, and veterans. veterans. <laughs> um, but women, you know, aren't one of those groups. So let's Well, have you seen the makeup of city council? It's atrocious. Well, that's the thing. There are 24 counselors on Ottawa City Council. Four of them are women. Yeah. So 17 and a half percent is. Uh, also, by the way, in a city that and has no a significant, like more women than men and very high education rate, like it makes absolutely no sense that the pool, uh, like, yeah, anyway, that the d numbers are what they are. Question. Does Jim Watson have a woman problem? Yes. yes. <laughs> and I believe you spelled that out in a recent op-ed. <laughs> yes. So... I also did this through a tweet thread. Um, Very eloquent, by the way. Which, like, <laughs> I, can, I can understand, the, you know, having liaisons for different things. Veterans, you know, they can experience mental health issues, social isolation, and all of these things. Yeah. Sports? Sports? <sighs> like, we're yeah. going to do something for not, not a, a number of people or a pro policy portfolio. Yeah. We're going to do it for something to marketing to bring like the the outdoor NHL game to Parliament Hill or we're going to try to get the Canada Summer Games cool great honestly that's fine it brings people here it creates tourism there's economic value mm -hmm. but to just blatantly ignore women is insanely offensive because you're basically promoting masculine issues only Oh, let me just rip into this for a second. First of all, Jim Watson didn't refuse to participate at, in a mayoral debate on women's issues in the last election. No, just two, did two elections, two elections ago. ago. Just didn't show up. Okay, yeah. did I, if it's too yeah. So just didn't think that he needed to be there. And also, I think he feels entitled to being mayor, and frankly, doesn't do show up at a lot of places that he should during uh, campaigns, um, other than his like attending events. I don't think he's there to argue policy issues. This is the mayor that supported, um, you know, marking uh, the anti-abortion, like, day of, you know, right to life day, whatever, at City Hall mm. uh, earlier this Isn't year. Isn't this or last the same year. man who allowed some, like, 80-year-old veteran to fly his anti-abortion? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm referring to. And they marked it as a, a day in City Hall. Like, they have this ceremonial, ceremonial acknowledgement of the day. we talked about this the in the pod. I'm, like, I'm, July. I, yeah. yeah, exactly. So not that with long. Ba with Bailey's middle finger. Yeah. <laughs> So not that long ago, right? But like this, is, and then defended it by saying, well, we can't pick and choose. Well, either, like you can't pick and choose. First of all, it's totally within your purview to approve or disapprove of these things. We wouldn't allow you to have hate speech day or anything else. Why are you letting this happen? 
Um, and then is nowhere to be found on so many other issues. It took so much canvassing from activists to even get him to make any public statements about the bubble law um, around the abortion clinics. He was completely like invisible on that issue until people made it absolutely politically necessary for him to comment. Yeah. And now he's fucking coming for us on Twitter. Be no, that's no. the thing, though. No, no, he comes to, he, well, okay, let's say, Article okay, circulating. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I've been, like, well, off I'm Twitter, embellishing it, but apparently. I'll I give you the out. Yeah. So yeah. another city councilor starts commenting, Scott Moffat, saying, you know, well, you guys are you guys are ignoring the hard work that city councilors so, are currently doing. Yes. Yeah, so by in the op-ed, yeah. he said that there are 11 uh, committees uh, that the council okay. runs, two of which are run by women. And in fairness, those uh, committee chairs are selected by council. Yes. Um, and the two committees that the women run, uh, Diane Deans and Jan Harder, one is the planning committee, which deals with social housing. The other one is the community. It has a very list. Community, social, something. So none of the hard stuff. So that's what we said. We said, quote, unquote, soft issues. And we used quotation marks. And then Scott Moffat comes in and says, well, those are the two committees with the largest budgets. Those women do great work. Uh, it's Diane unfair D to characterize Yeah, it's unfair them. to characterize those in a dismissive way. And we're like, well, we're not characterizing them in a dismissive way. We agree with you that that's important work. We're, it, our issue is the lack of representation and the gendered nature of these portfolios. And we don't think they're soft issues, but people think they're soft issues. And you wouldn't see a we woman conversely at the head of the finance committee or the head of like, like that's the, like that's that's the, the that's argument. The argument. But so, so he's, he was like, yeah, okay, fine. We, we got to a common Sort of. And then at the end, he was like, we should research this more. We should da-da-da. Well, okay, Absolutely. but the numbers sure. are there. Like, we can research it more. But I think what we're telling you is on a gut check level and also knowing what we know about, em like, employment equity and representation and how policy Why is wouldn't made, there be research already? Why wouldn't there be research already? Other cities do it. I worked in the, the like a similar office um, that dealt with equality and inclusion at City Hall in Windsor, where we wrote an employment equity policy. We did we did a, we had a liaison role with all the community organizations that touched on race and gender, um, LGBTQ issues, and we don't have that in Ottawa. Like, and that was a de over a decade ago. Not to age myself, but like that's like we're so behind on that shit. And, but on top of that, like, there are stats, and, there, and the citizens also written about how senior management of the, seven, or of the 20 uh, most senior positions, highest paid positions at City Hall, 17 of them are men. I tweeted about this when that came out, when they reopened yeah. the whole organization. And, and this, uh, like, the stats in general about hiring at City Hall are abysmal for women. I'm totally on Aaron's Twitter right yeah. now. I, I don't I don't trust this. When he says we can just put the money into programs, I don't trust he knows which programs or how to do it. So he also said, uh, I don't remember recall exactly where, but that there's women, there's no barriers for women to, to enter politics. Are you? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I mean, sure. Technically, that is correct. Well, it's like how we have equality. It's technically, technically. correct. Yeah. But yeah, and then you look at the fun, like the how much fundraising is involved, how people are recruited, who is supported, who people turn up for. Abs it's like you have to be ignorant, super ignorant, living under a rock to be a politically engaged person, a so-called liberal living in Ottawa, and not know that there's a gender imbalance or that there are systemic barriers to women's inclusion. But also, let's talk about the unrealistic expectation that Jim Watson is setting as mayor. So he's a single man who 
is very concerned about his public persona. He goes to 14 different barbecues a day, uh, takes a photo with everyone, puts it on his Twitter to say, hey, I'm supportive of all these organizations and all of these, like, Which schools. organizations, though? Doesn't matter. But it does. Well, I, that's that's not my argument. Oh, okay. Right now. Okay, sorry. Um, so he's <laughs> he's like, oh, and then, and then I have a council meeting, and then I'm gonna read some emails, and then I'm gonna go to another meeting and another appearance, and then go and call it a day. Cool, great. Um, oh, you're that unrealistic standard of being able to make so many public appearances is not the same. It's not accessible for a woman because it's she very likely has may have children. And may have to take care of those children. I see what you're saying. So childcare becomes an issue. Because it becomes more inherently more expensive. It becomes expensive, but also yeah. it becomes unrealistic because, and like, more if this, unrealistic. If the yep. city, if the residents are expecting the mayor to be at 14 different events a day, but is that an expectation, or is that just a well, tone I think he he's set? He's, he's making setting the, it an expectation. He's yeah. also making. I mean, his whole reign has been very like cer like it is ceremonial. He just shows up. I don't. I haven't seen him do a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, infrastructure I wise, and a lot of things have have started to move with him. But I mean. I don't think people are holding him accountable for some of the shoddy work that's happened. Well, he's not. Okay. So and, uh, there's a complete lack of transparency. So, around what so let's talk about that infrastructure. Yeah. Okay. Um, OC Transpo is abysmal. Okay. Sorry. People, this is just inside baseball. It's Ottawa. But it's the nation's capital. So that's why you should care. Anyway. Um, the, even though ridership on OC Transpo is going down we are building and expanding OC Transpo without dealing with the problems. Now, how, what do you think the breakdown is gender-wise in terms of those who take OC Transpo? Well, oh, exactly. Defi definitely right? more women. There's more a women, huge more low income. Yeah. More low income flow. Yep. More the prices are population. Yeah. yeah, and the, pr the price of OC Transpo has never been more exorbitant. Exactly. Mm -hmm. For oh what we, gosh. oh my gosh, it's for awful. Yeah, and especially for the service that you're getting. It is awful. Yeah. Now, there is a low-income pass. He will say, that would be yeah. his rebuttal. But um, I think in terms of value, we're not getting it. Mm -hmm. Jim Watson also likes, I think, he is more on the economic expansion of Ottawa and building up its economic profile, mm -hmm. which is why uh, at well, one time... They were time gunning for Amazon. Amazon, which would have been a fucking disaster. <laughs> I think we dodged a bullet. Uh, we did dodge a bullet. I don't even know who got the ended up getting the Amazon. It hasn't been decided. It hasn't been decided? Okay. So, so RIP to that, to that town or city who gets it, okay? <laughs> um... Jim Watson also is, like, there's just this, I, I think of him more as neoliberal in, in, his, in his policies and his thinking. So he's basically, you know, Hillary <laughs> before Bernie. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. invasion yeah. Hillary. Okay, yeah. so uh, I, I really, I'm not surprised because this is how, a lot of, of neoliberal type people, um, center-right, center-left kind of handle issues, especially social issues, is that, well, well we, have, we have this program, so it should take care of everything, and it's okay. Now, 
the fact that he has to say we should put more money into programming instead of having this women's bureau tells me that there's not enough money put into women's programming instead of into this quest for economic expansion. Because you wouldn't have to make that statement if everything was persona, you know, everything was, was copacetic. Right, and I mean, uh, just to kind of go back to what we wrote in our op-ed, like the crux of our argument is that one, we don't like, there is no one gender program where all this money should be funneled through right. that could do this work. There's no singular women's issue either, except for maybe childcare. That would probably be a, something the city should take up more. But, it, but there are huge intersectionalities where gender and other identities come into policy making at all levels and the role of that uh, kind of a bureau and we don't we're not it's not our idea we're not inventing it but the you know a need to have at least a point person or people um, influencing policy doing that research that looks at the how these inter intersectionalities play with all the policy making of the city and it can come up in transit you know there's the example of Sweden and snow plows and snow plowing for bike lanes um, that came out of a gender-based analysis that David, like there's so many ways that um, gender, um, you know, economic, uh, like economic um, class and, and everything else can come into policy. And it doesn't seem like the city is doing that based on who runs City Hall in terms of managerial positions. Doesn't seem like anyone there is capable of doing that as it's mostly white men who work there. City Council is mostly white men. So why, and, and, and Jim Watson has made it very clear that he's not dependable on these issues. So why should we have blind faith in him, you know, following through on this so-called promise of injecting more funding for gender issues where I, I don't think he knows what they are. He doesn't know the scope of the issue and it impacts every level of decision-making. Um, like this kind of analysis would need to come in at every level of decision-making. We want evidence-based policy, but don't want to provide the evidence. Yeah. Okay. The other thing I was happy about with the whole, sorry, going back to the federal budget and black Canadians yeah. is that there was money allocated to study and to research and to provide that evidence. Yeah. Um, and evidence is only as good as the people who, who seek it, mm. right? So if you have a, a city council that's 17.5% or 17 plus or whatever percent women, I mean, how do you, we talked about how economics and, and the lack of women in economics affects policy and what policy is brought forward. I'm pretty sure that it's the same thing with Ottawa City Council. The other thing too is that, how many racialized people, I hate that word racialized. Okay, how many non-white <laughs> people are on that council? Maybe one if you squint. Um, uh, there's. Yeah. Oh, there's one Arab counselor. Yeah, that's maybe the, two. That's the one I'd have to squint. go back and yeah. look. All right, we don't care for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, but fair enough. Someone who's white passing, absolutely, absolutely white passing. Like, and he's this in, is not, and he's in charge of the. He's the liaison for refugee issues, and he's yeah. uh, also a little bit iffy on that file. Yes, because yes. by the way, we're not a unified front either. So yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah. So the 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 federations conversation, I'm sure, yeah, could be applied. Point. Oh, yeah. Oh man. And uh, I can only imagine, okay? <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, but, like, I, I, I know. I, I, know I, even, I even have his name in my head, which is funny because I don't remember names. Um, 
but I've, I, I don't see issues coming forward. Now, there are a lot of language issues that they pay attention to because mm. it's all white people. For the most part, yes, that's who they're thinking. Is huge. It's huge. Yeah. It's the and, and like, it's not that, you know, people there are people of color whose first language is French. Mm -hmm. It just seems to be the debate is is framed within this Quebec-centered um, way, and I I just think that that's old. So stay tuned for uh, more Ottawa mayoral bullshit as. Uh, <laughs> Our uh, city elections come up over the fall. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's election time. I love it. Yeah, I it's, a big, love it. it's a big year for elections. So I know. Go, so. yeah. We're going to continue to push the mayor on this issue. Mm -hmm. You know what? Why the hell not? Absolutely. Well, what yeah, else absolutely. are we going to do? And yeah. uh, <laughs> if anyone is looking to run for mayor and compete against Joe Watson, let us know if you need volunteers. Yeah, we'd, I would. I would <laughs> like to have. I would like to have you on the show. Slash think the about show. it. Maybe we'll volunteer for your campaign if you don't <laughs> suck. Yeah, I mean, sell us on you first. Yeah, like, like don't, don't just be like, oh, I can do it. Be no, legit, but like, we're letting you know there's a void, and we need. We need. He needs to be challenged. Yeah. At the very least, there needs what to be a it race. would do is yes there needs to be a race and number two it would actually we would actually be talking about these issues in ottawa as always we like to thank media style for letting us use their space media style is a progressive public affairs agency located in ottawa they are a social enterprise in canada a better place you can follow the pod on twitter at bad and bitchy on instagram at bad and bitchy pod on facebook slash bad and b podcast and email us your questions for our Dear Bitches column for um, if you have critiques, if you want to give us something to cover on the podcast, badandbpod at gmail.com. Any parting words, ladies? No. I'm, I'm, I'm just hungry. <laughs> I have to go back to work. I'm uh. excited for the Oscars. i got to fill out my ballot. Ooh, are you good? <laughs> Is there a prize? There are many prizes. There's one joke ballot that's like, you know, Will James Franco show up? Like, will like Ryan Tommy Wiseau show up? Will yeah, yeah. Someone call well, like Ryan Seacrest? Yeah, right. Yeah. Or does anyone make reference to like Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey? And like, da da da. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then there's the it's actual profits. ballot. Yeah. So I'm very excited. Cool. Well, have fun. Thank you. I hope you win. Thank Something. you. Me too. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I have to leave in 20 minutes. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> My rent and receipt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. Okay. I just, I, I feel like, I feel like I was like on a date and I thought it was going well. And <laughs> then I was like, uh, uh, okay. That's I a guess great we, analogy. <laughs> I guess we won't see each other again. Like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that <Aww>. was fine. <laughs>